It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Crown and Anchor Greyhounds. This is Richmond Till We Die, a conversation about the Apple TV Plus show Ted Lasso, where we explore the characters, their relationships to each other, and how they're able to make us laugh until we can hardly breathe one moment and then feel with the deepest parts of our hearts the next. I'm Brett, and it takes two to tango, but only one to do a podcast intro. And my co-host, Christian, and I are so excited to present our next conversation to y'all today. Our guest for this episode is Lou Inglefield, who works with several UK-based organizations as a sports activist. Currently, she serves as the director of Pride Sports UK, the campaign director of Football versus Homophobia, the co-chair of Pride House International, and a board member of the FAIR Network. We connected with Lou on Twitter through her work with the organization Football versus Homophobia, which is an international initiative opposing homophobia in football, a.k.a. soccer. Football versus homophobia tackles this issue at all levels of the game all around the world in creative ways that both support queer and trans folks in the football community while also educating and empowering others to be confident and effective allies. Of course, Lou's a massive fan of Ted Lasso too, so we invited her on our show to chat about Ted and the AFC Richmond squad, the work she does as a sports activist, and the representation of queer characters on Ted Lasso generally, as well as the newly cemented status of Colin as a queer character specifically. And finally, let this serve as your official spoiler alert. If you have not yet watched Season 3, Episode 3 of Ted Lasso, you might want to pause this episode now and catch up. We promise we'll be here waiting when y'all come back. So, Greyhounds, please join us in giving a warm welcome to Lou Inglefield. Thank you so much for being with us, Lou. No, thank you for having me on. It's very exciting to be here. Yeah, well, we cannot wait to chat Ted Lasso with you and about all your work. But first things first, one of the reasons we invited you here, you're a big fan of the show, Ted Lasso. Why did you start watching the show? And when did you know you loved the show? Yeah, you know, I can't remember why I started watching it. I cannot remember if... My colleague Jen had started watching it, but I think I maybe made her watch it anyway. So that's gone down in the kind of annals of history. One of us recommended it to the other one. And and I was kind of like, you know, I was told, oh, yeah, you know, Ted Lasso, it's got some good reviews. People are saying good things about it. And I was like, oh, you know what? I like work in football. Do I really then want to watch something about football? As you know, like in my entertainment time, I might want to watch something slightly different that doesn't revolve around football. 
And um, anyway, I um, I started watching it and I think I just got it hooked in like really quickly. I, d- I don't think there was like one standout moment for me, but I think it had like this unique combination of things that I found really appealing. So it's a kind of underdog story, which I love, you know, and um, and so that kind of, you know, that kind of like p- appealed to me, I think, on a, on a kind of like emotional level. And then I think there's something just, you know, the kind of plot device, which is, you know, this American from the wrong sport, the wrong kind of football, um, comes to 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 British football, and um, and then kind of what that means, and about how there's an outside view on British football culture, and I think that some of that is incredibly well done and incredibly hilarious. And I also think as well, you know, for me, I spend a lot of time working in football. It's all very serious. I'm tackling homophobia on a day to day basis, and so I have to think you know, very critically about football a lot of the time. And then just having this show where, you know, um, that makes you laugh at, uh, uh, about some of those kind of cultural issues, I just, I, I found very addictive, I think. You're a Manchester City supporter. How did you feel about them being that sort of soft villain in the first couple of seasons? And are you happy that Ted Lasso fans can now direct their ire toward West Ham instead? <laughs> well, I'm not going to say anything about West Ham because I don't want to upset colleagues who, <laughs> in, uh, you know, <laughs> who are, are West Ham supporters. But I think, you know, in terms of being a Man City fan, like, one, we're really used to people, you know, being people's villains, you know, and... Uh, on one hand, and then on the other hand, Man City fans are notorious for being able to laugh at themselves. So, you know, one of one of our biggest songs, which I won't say because it contains swear words, but one of the, <laughs> the, the kind of standard City songs is about how we always lose football and we just don't care because we've all had a drink. And that's basically the bottom line. And that is sung at the Etihad, you know, that was sung in... 1989 when we were in the you know the old kind of like second division and it's sung now when uh you know when man city are on much you know well are what man city are so i think there's a lot of a lot of history of man city fans being able to laugh at themselves so yeah i i wasn't offended and i'm also kind of slightly used to it you know, these days anyway. <laughs> as we're watching season three now, we're seeing Colin now as an explicitly queer character. And that's different. It was sort of hinted at in ways that a lot of times was limited and problematic in the first couple of seasons. We also had the scene at the end of season two with Keely and um, the woman from Barkingham Palace that people were kind of raised an eyebrow about as we're just an episode or two into now Colin's story as we're experiencing it, what would you say is like the best case scenario for his story arc? Well, I suppose what I would like to see is, you know, a story in which ultimately he's able to be his authentic self and still be part of the, you know, AFC Richmond changing room and, uh, you know, and be welcome and accepted in that space. So 
I think that one of the things that Ted Lasso has done really well is to allow uh, a discussion of football which embraces a diversity of masculinities. And one of the things that we really struggle with around football or traditionally have, and one of the reasons that homophobia is quite prevalent, um, is because masculinity is very prescribed in British football. You've got to be a certain way and uh, you've kind of got to play the part. And there's loads and loads of stories of footballers who've done that, you know, like even the most recent, well, no, Jakob Yankto came out. But before Jakob Yankto came out, you know, Jake Daniels, who plays here for Blackpool, who's a really young guy, you know, was 17 when he came out. He's now 18, you know, talked about knowing that he was gay from a really early age. And in his teenage years, you know, pretending to have girlfriends and stuff because he couldn't quite be himself. So um, so anything, any kind of like story that comes out of it in which, um, you know, Colin's able to be himself and is still part of still part of the club, still part of that culture would be really great. Of course, the other the other issue here, as we saw at the end of the last episode, is Trent Crim. So there's the, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how that's going to play out in terms of the role of the media, because certainly in the UK, we've had like massive problems with media mm-hmm. speculation around gay players. It drives us all mad, you know. Um, right. It, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, uh, they, you know, they'll do kind of like front front page headlines in their tabloids of like two Premier League aces due to come out and and these kind uh, these kind of sensationalist stories. So yeah. what I'm hoping for is that you know Trent has some integrity um, and that maybe, for example, you know there is a way in which you know Trent can maybe support the coming out of the player. I don't know. But that's what that's ultimately mm. what I'd like to see, a really positive story that's in line with some of the other coming out stories we've seen in football recently. Yeah, there was definitely some sort of media uh, little dust kick up right before Jake Daniels like make, sort of had his full announcement. Like there was even speculation that now like looking back, you can kind of see, oh, someone had gotten wind of the story and didn't quite like scoop it, but like sort of tried to, or like sort of like rip, you know, raise awareness in a, in kind of a negative light or in just sort of a very like salacious way. And yeah, yeah as you say, that's not helpful. It's not helpful for the player or for other, for other players who might be closeted and wanting to think about what it might look like to be their true selves and to, to be out or in whatever way that it means for them. And so, yeah, that's, that's really tough. And I, like you said, I, when, just when it comes to Trent Krim, like, he no longer is employed by a media outlet that we know of, but still like reporters going to report. And like, you know, that's, that's part of the job as a media member. And I do hope that there is a way, like you said, for Colin to be able to kind of control his story. And I will say just on that note, since we're doing a tiny bit of speculation, when Colin's boyfriend situationship, whoever this guy Michael is to him at the moment, when he walked into the restaurant at first, I thought, Oh, some of the guys already know that's really cool. And then it comes to find out, you know, he's like, oh, I'm Colin's wingman, this and that and the other. You know? yeah. So I was a little bit bummed out by like, OK, yes, we're doing a full like closeted story. And like so we're going to I think we're going to see a journey for Colin. I really hope that we do. 
Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that's one of the things for me about Ted Lasso as well, is that on the face of it, it's just a really jovial, you know, lighthearted, utterly romantic take on football. I mean, it's preposterous, isn't it? Right. The absolute over- overwhelming majority of the plot lines. But one of the things that they do really well is the telling of human stories within that, I think. So... You know, so I just hope that they handle this in a really kind of, you know, in a really positive way. And, um, you know, and they don't drag it out unnecessarily, but that, you know, uh, that it becomes a, a story that that is um, about a celebration. Ultimately, that would be really cool. We came to know you through your work with football versus homophobia. We came across the organization online on Twitter and started following it and seeing all of the work that was going on and then have subsequently um, had the opportunity to meet you a bit. Can you share with us a little about your intro into this type of work Um, and share with our listeners too, just the origins and evolution of football versus homophobia? Yeah, sure. So um, so basically, I was working in, I think, around 2003 for a charity, a not-for-profit um, in the UK that provided kind of health and well-being um, opportunities for LGBTQ plus people. And I was based in Manchester. And, and to cut a long story short, the role came to an end. And I thought, what am I going to do next? And so I, along with somebody else, a guy called Trevor Birchick, set up um, an organization called Pride Sports. And we started working really in football, I would say, in about, I don't know, maybe 2007, 2008. And around that time, a group of activists from Brighton, right down on the south coast of England, had... um, Uh, set up an organisation called the Justin Campaign, which was about honouring the memory of Justin Fashionu. And um, we were kind of, at that time, there was hardly anybody working in this space at all. And we kind of got together on a number of occasions and talked about how we could drive football forward, how we could drive change forward, you know, what was our 10-year plan, what were our 10-year goals And one of the things that we talked about was how there was no campaign in football that specifically addressed homophobia. So people talked about discrimination in football, but they weren't talking, they weren't saying, they weren't naming it, you know. And Mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems with football at that time was that the complete invisibility of LGBTQ plus people. So you would have conversations with people about homophobic language and they were just kind of like, well, why does it matter? There's no one gay in football anyway. So, you know, if you call somebody a homophobic term, you know, there's an invisible victim. There's no victim really because the person we're shouting that term at is probably straight. So why does it matter? So we felt that that we needed something that kind of described the issue. And the Justin campaign absolutely brilliantly went away and created this campaign, Football Versus Homophobia, which I always say worked really well because what it did was it kind of positioned football, the football family, against 
the thing that we wanted to get rid of. So at that point, it wasn't, you know, it was a long time ago. We weren't talking about inclusion in the way that we are now and embracing kind of diversity in, in the way we were now. We were saying, no, this is a problem and we've got to tackle it. And we as football are naturally against it, aren't we? And, um, so they set up the campaign um, and they were just at that time a group of volunteers. You know, they were, you know, university lecturers and artists and students and, you, you know, and a small group of people like like one was a social worker. I think they were a small group of people. And um, and of course, the it was the right campaign at the right time and it massively blew up. And then what happened was some of the people who were involved in it were kind of like, whoa, you know, this is this is absolutely massive and this is really serious and we're being asked to do all these things and actually, you know, we've all got day jobs. So they came to us at Pride Sports and they were like, you know, will you help us run this campaign? And we said, yeah, of course we would. So we started running kind of jointly with them for a season in the second season we were kind of 90% running the campaign. And then the third season, we just took it over altogether, basically. So, yeah, we've been kind of running it on our own since 2014 and jointly since 2012. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Well, it's brilliant work that y'all do. We love, I love the whole, everything y'all share from the Twitter account is like so helpful, uh, which is again, the way we connected with it. And in many ways, sports, whether we're talking about English football, American football, you know, basketball, whatever, sport is a microcosm of society. So it's really not a surprise that homophobia is present in sports as it is everywhere else. So what are like one or two unique aspects of homophobia in football specifically that people who don't follow the sport might be unaware of or find surprising. Okay. So I think the first thing is to say, not only is a fo- is football a microcosm of society, like I've had this conversation with people many times over the years when people will say that, you know, kind of football reflects society. And actually what I think is about male football, um, so male soccer or male sports generally, um, is that they tend to be they tend to magnify society because when you've got a load of guys together um, in male only environments, um, you know men learn from a really really early age that the best way to be part of the group is to try and other other people in that group. You know, so if you're gay, then obviously I'm heterosexual. You know, if you're weak then I'm strong. So that's something that guys kind of learn growing up in junior sports. And then, you know, because that hasn't been dealt with critically until really relatively recently, you have a culture of that. So there are still people in the British game, you know, like coaches for some coaches, for example, some traditional people in the game who um, who still have those attitudes. And, 
you know, there are still young men coming through the system with those kind of, you know, very magnified kind of like um, that kind of masculinity, kind of that jostling for position, you know. And of course, that's really intensified mm -hmm. in English football or British football because there's so much at stake. You know, you've got something like, you know, you have a load of kids coming through uh, football academies. So, so there's so much competition there as well. Um, I think some of the unique things in kind of like UK football, like British football, from what I understand, <laughs> that are different from like US soccer, is that it's, you know, English football, I imagine, is much more like American football in terms of its culture. You know, I think in US soccer, you see quite a lot of radical fan activity. You see you, you see a lot more kind of diversity there, I think, that... that um, uh, that's like really exciting and you know I'd love to go to a soccer game in the, in the United States and I haven't been so it'd be really interesting to hear about that but you know for for a really long time you know uh, British football was very monolithic it was really the place that kind of men went um, you know that men went to football as fans um, the you know women didn't go to football, children didn't go to football. Who would ever take their children to football and hear some of the things that were said at the game? So you know, so there is a history of like homophobic chanting, se sexism, misogyny, transphobia, racism that is really quite entrenched in the um, has been quite entrenched in the British game, and there are organizations like football versus homophobia or for example kick it out that are working to kind of challenge some of those kind of cultural cultural things and i have to say in the time that i've been working in this space we have seen a huge amount of change we focused a lot on this idea of toxic masculinity and how difficult it is to be an out gay male football player i don't know how it is exactly in England, but in the United States, since the mid nineties, it has become much easier to be an out lesbian player in sports. And at the same time now, like for a long time, women's sports didn't get the same media coverage that men's sports do. And so now if there's more popularity of women's sports and more coverage than like sometimes that can bring more of the unsavory elements like the haters and the homophobia and the sexism and all that. What is the lay of the land in England when it comes to the work that you do with the women's game um, and some of the challenges you see there that maybe you don't see on the men's side? And then also, how has it been going as women's sports has become more popular and elevated in stature? Wow. <laughs> so I, I suppose... One of the things that we're constantly battling is the assumption that everything's okay in the women's game. You know, that there are out gay players in the women's game. So, you know, we don't need to worry about that, do we? And then what we forget is that there's an entire kind of infrastructure around the women players. And we also know that, um, you know, there are some persistent homophobic ideas you know the idea that um that if you play football as a woman that you're gay you know is a persistent stereotype some players you know there are some players in the women's game 
who, you know, maybe don't understand what all the issues are, you know, maybe feel uncomfortable about there being um, the number of, of like queer women in the game and what that means and that that's something to be ashamed of. So there's definitely work to to do there. I mean, you know, in the training that we do, you know, I've done training before with male coaches who've um, have said homophobic things, and they're working in the women's game, you know. So, um, mm. so yeah, there are issues. There are definitely issues to deal with there. You know, we've got a, a major situation in the UK at the moment where, I mean, you know. I'm speaking to folks in the US, but, you know, there's a major issue around transphobia in the UK at the moment um, and, you know, transphobia in the media and um, and we're starting to see transphobic rhetoric in politics as well. And, you, you know, so that's something um, that targets the women's game much more. So around sport, it's all about, you know, trans women, um, trans women kind of playing in the game and whether that's OK or not. And one of the things that's been really fantastic from the United States is seeing female players speak out against transphobic rhetoric and to talk about the inclusion of trans women in the game. And that's been kind of like really, really powerful. And, you know, amongst active players, we have less of that, uh, less of that in the UK at the moment. And that would mm. be something that would be great to see. And I also imagine there are opportunities uh, in the women's game to talk much more about those kind of issues around, um, of, of transphobia um, at the moment as well. But yeah, that there's just this assumption that, you know, homophobia doesn't exist in or around the women's game. And of course it does. You mentioned that women have to exist within these structures, work within these structures. And one of the, those structures is FIFA. And I'm not even sure like what word I should use to describe it because problematic doesn't really cover it. Maybe like diabolical <laughs> is our characterization of FIFA. But you were recently sharing about the situation where FIFA failed to guarantee that captains of the national teams competing at the upcoming Women's World Cup this summer would be allowed to wear the anti-discrimination One Love armband. In your mind, what's the importance of that symbol as one of inclusion, as opposed to as some people categorize it like strictly as a political statement? Yeah, well, that's a that's an interesting question, isn't it? So I think there's some some interesting background is that the One Love armband, to start with, wasn't an explicitly LGBTQ plus inclusive armband. You know, it's an anti-discrimination armband that that comes from a right. campaign out of the Netherlands. So on one hand, when the One Love armband was being talked about, I was a bit kind of like, oh, come on, folks. Can't we do a bit better than that? You know, the, the real issues that we're talking, you know, there's a load of issues here we're talking about in Qatar. But in terms of armbands, you know, we've got rainbow armbands. We've got the intersex inclusive armbands that we now do at Football versus Homophobia. Why are we going for something like the One Love armband? And then like the One Love armband became like the most contentious thing ever. And that was quite extraordinary. And and I feel that personally from having kind of like worked in this space for a long time, I know that FIFA didn't see 
um, rainbows or, you know, um, the rainbow kind of symbolism as, as anything other than a symbol of inclusion. It wasn't seen, it was originally seen as a kind of political thing. Then it became much more accepted as a symbol of inclusion. And then it became politicized around Qatar. And I think that, you know, we cannot think that that isn't anything to do with the environment in which the World Cup was taking place, you know, about FIFA's relationship with the Supreme Committee. We were told that, you know, rainbow flags, rainbow symbolism would be allowed. And then it wasn't, you know, we had, you know, one of the most famous people in Welsh football, Laura McAllister, having her bucket hat confiscated at a stadium. So I think the whole thing around it being a, a being political is uh, is really problematic, you know, but also, you know, we're living in a world and at a time when we are seeing a pushback against LGBTQ plus people and communities as well. So we also have to be realistic that this isn't just confined to football, um, you know, that um, that we're seeing this in, in kind of wider society and, you know, discussions like certainly in the UK, any kind of conversation about trans inclusion is kind of inherently pr- politicised. You know, we were just used to be the kind of, you know, oh, Pride Sports, you know, the LGBTQ plus inclusion organisation. And now we're seen as kind of like the pro-trans activists, you know, and and the, the right. nature of our organisation has been politicised by others. And um, and that's really, really useful when you want to exclude people, isn't it? You know, to to make people, to make it appear as if people are, you know, hugely political or there's political gain to be had or that in some way, you, you know, there's something other than, you know, justice and inclusion that motivates uh, your work. Football versus homophobia has worked with a lot of clubs and a lot of supporters groups. And so while I'm sure there are some that have been frustrating and heartbreaking to work with, there are others that have shown a lot of growth and been encouraging to work with. So taking that experience, say you were asked to come in and work with AFC Richmond, what would you want them to do, expect them to do, push them to do when it comes to inclusion and activism in football? Well, I think there's a whole load of things that could be done. So, you know, football versus homophobia is largely an education campaign. So we would want to be working with like the first team, for example, you know, talking to them about the need to be inclusive, talking to them about things like the language they use and, uh, you know, homophobic behaviours, you know, those kinds of issues. You know, we would also want to be working with the coaching staff. I mean, you know, just let me at Ted Lasso and Coach Beard and Roy. You know, I'm I'm all over that. So we would we would also want to be working with those people because the coaching team at any club are the people who create the environment. Um, and you know, there's a whole load of work there around coaching LGBTQ plus athletes that would be really valuable to any kind of coaching team. Then we would be talking to them about their um, their academy. So obviously AFC Richmond has an academy. So we would want to be talking to the coaches there and the young players coming through the academy as well. And, um, you know, uh, talking to them about inclusion, 
Um, also, you know, something that we're thinking more about at the moment is the way that athletes who might be allies can talk to the media about oh. these issues because I think that one of the, the things that we have in the UK, don't know about the US, is that um, male footballers are a bit nervous around talking about these issues. They may not have the right language. So they may be like, oh, yeah, I'm okay with gay people. I'm okay with trans people, but I don't really know how to talk about that. And if I start talking about it, the press will be all over it. So, you know, how do, how do I kind of navigate that space? Um, and I'd want to pull in our friends at Sports Media LGBT+, for example, to do some of that work with us around that. Then it'd be great to see an LGBTQ plus supporters group set up at AFC Richmond as well, because visibility in the stands is really, really important. And there are undoubtedly LGBTQ plus supporters of AFC Richmond because I'm one. So there must be loads of them. And um, <laughs> so, so that would be really good. And then some stuff, I think, around you know, visible support. So, you know, designating a game to the football versus homophobia campaign in February or, you know, doing something for the football versus transphobia week of action. So, you know, some basic stuff around allyship, learning, listening, respecting, and then making a show of support and and also then having a kind of zero tolerance around um, around homophobia you know, maybe having a reporting line or letting your fans know how they can report discrimination, education for stewards so they can hear that. If anything goes off in the stands, then stewards can deal with that. They can be on that straight away. So, I mean, honestly, I could have a field day. <laughs> well, I think the big takeaway there is that there's more to this than just telling people to like flip a switch and stop being homophobic. It takes a strategic initiatives that are based on you know the needs of the club and there may be a lot of needs there are a lot of needs at every club and so that's where an organization like yours becomes invaluable because you have the experience and you can guide supporters groups fans players clubs through this process so thank you for all of the work that you're doing thank you for sharing some of that with us and we encourage uh, our fans to go and check out that work on your website and on your twitter account and to find ways to get involved. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it was Thanks, a blast. Lou. Thanks, Lou. And that is our show. We had a wonderful time chatting with Lou about Ted Lasso and all the amazing work she's doing with Pride Sports UK and Football versus Homophobia. You can find links to Lou's social media accounts as well as those of the organizations we mentioned and websites and ways to get involved in all of that in the show notes which is at tedlassopod.com. We'll be back soon with more Ted Lasso goodness, but you can keep the conversation going with us on Twitter and Instagram in the meantime. Our handle on both platforms is at tedlassopod. This episode of Richmond Till We Die is brought to you by Gin and Kerosene Productions. It was produced by me, Brett, and my co-host, Christian. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take 30 seconds to subscribe to our feed and give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or a five-star rating on Spotify. Heck, if you're feeling generous, you could even do both. As always, we appreciate all the ways y'all share your love and support for the pod. Okay, I'm Brett, signing off for Christian and Lou Inglefield. Thanks for listening. Until next time, cheers, y'all.